I'll try not to reminisce too much. I feel like I started that way last Sunday. Somehow in my mind, this was the start of all of it a year ago. I think it's because I was out of town the week prior to this, and my focus wasn't quite the same. But I do remember a year and a week ago suddenly seeing more and more things disappear off my calendar. Well, that's canceled, and delete that event, and that's canceled, and this is canceled. And um, In all honesty, I'm thankful for what we've been able to do in the last year. I really am. It's been uh, a blessing as much as we may or may not always like having to join this way, speaking of which. See, I get carried away. (laughs) Um, But I'm thankful for the opportunity that we've had, thankful for our guests this morning. And I'm really thankful for last Sunday. Okay, I expected more than just one Amen on that. Who enjoyed last Sunday? Amen. There you go. Thank you. I did too. Um, most of that wasn't planned, obviously. And I will just point out a key factor in that I truly believe is the participation of the Lord's people in the service. That's absolutely critical. Um, this isn't, isn't my show, never will be, never should be. This is our opportunity to come together to talk about and worship uh, the Lord together. So I do appreciate everyone who was involved last week. So unless there's something else, I'm going to pick up with what I thought I was going to preach on last Sunday. (laughs) All right. Turn with me to Psalms 124. Lord willing, we're going to look at Psalms 124 and 125 today. Continuing, if you remember, our Psalms of Ascent, or perhaps your scriptures say Psalms of Degree, presenting the idea that we are moving in a forward, upward progression. We discussed that there's, <clears throat> these Psalms are uh, by different authors, and they've been put together traditionally. It wasn't the same author who wrote them. It was obviously the same author who inspired them. We discussed how they may have been sung as people were on a pilgrimage up to the temple, but that they demonstrate an idea that we should consider. So let's read together. I'll read Psalms 124 to begin, and then later on we'll move to Psalms 125. And Psalms 124 reads this way, A song of ascent of David. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side... Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snares of the fowler. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And here again, we see such beautiful encouragement, 
such words of wisdom that we should consider today and consider this week as we go about our lives. Looking at the first verse and the first and the second verse, we see two ifs here. If the Lord had not been on our side, and then it says again, it repeats it. It said, if the Lord had not been on our side. These ifs are for illustration. It's not literal because the Lord is on our side. The only if that we would add to this is if you know him and if you belong to him, then he is on your side. There is no if about it. And so when this is being said, when this is being read, when we say out loud, if the Lord had not been on our side, we're saying the answer would have been destruction. But because the Lord is on our side, no ifs involved, then we are not in this way of destruction. And so while there are two ifs here, the reality is there aren't any ifs if you know the Lord. And look at what it is that's discussed here. Of course, I have been speaking for the last several weeks, probably the last few months, telling you and encouraging you that I am more and more concerned about our society and the direction that we're going. The concern that I have over the church in general and God's people specifically, how the world cares not a bit for us and is trying, whether purposefully or just as a result of their ignorance, to destroy the very foundation of who and what we are. The encouraging part is, this has been going on for a long time. This is an old psalm. And it was going on then. The people of that day and of that time were after God's people then, as they are today and as they will be tomorrow. Look at what it says there in verse 3. They would have swallowed us up alive. And their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Now, many of us in this part of the world can easily remember 2010 and a tremendous flood that hit this area. And if you've ever seen the results of a flood, either you've seen one firsthand or you've seen pictures of it, it is unbelievable what water can do. It will take something that seems immovable and it will move it. It will roll over it. If you are stuck in it, it will roll over you and keep you down until you can't get up. It is amazing the power. It just pushes everything. It moves things along. And that is the imagery that we see here. This is what the world wants to do to us. It wants to push us down to keep us down, and to roll over us. It wants to give us no opportunity to stand up, no opportunity to fight back. And if you've ever found yourself or seen someone or something in the midst of a raging flood, you know that's exactly the case. The only way to get out is to receive help from someone who is outside the flood. Society is going to roll over us. It's going to submerge us. It's going to sweep us away. And if it were not for God on our side, we would succumb to it. We cannot trust anything else. You cannot say, well, you're a good swimmer. You cannot say, well, I will do this. The only thing we can do is to trust in him. And so we should pause and consider the times that we have found ourselves in a raging flood 
and the Lord has rescued us. Because he has. I can think of many times, I have no doubt that you can. I see some of you shaking your heads. I know that you can think of times that you have found yourself in the raging water, in the water that's pushing you along in a way you don't want to go, and it's pulling you down, and it were not for the Lord, you would be drowned. And I am thankful for one that he has rescued me out of those times. Now, the imagery changes here slightly, and as I mentioned last Sunday, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I want to read someone else's words. It's actually kind of long. And I do that because I don't think I can do any better than this man of God who wrote this about this passage. I want to read to you something that Charles Spurgeon wrote in one of his books. Now, real quick, just to set this up for those who may not be familiar with the language, uh, the idea of a fowler is someone who hunts birds, hunts and captures birds. And so as we read this and you hear this word fowler, it's talking about someone who is hunting and capturing birds. So let me read here what Charles Spurgeon had to say about this verse. Pay careful attention. What I think I see in this is a reflection of my heart when I read this verse. And I see in the great men of the past who knew the Lord sometimes when they pick up their pen and it's like the Spirit of God just pours out onto a page. You can see them and hear them literally praising the Lord as they write this. I see this constantly with Matthew Henry, for example, who I quote quite often here. And you'll see that all of a sudden there's this long diatribe over these couple of verses. And it's him praising the Lord with his pen. And we get to see where he's at. I feel the same way about this. So let me read the two verses first and then I'll read this section. It says, Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to pray as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have Escape. So this is what Matthew Henry says about this section. Our soul is like a bird for many reasons. But in this case, the point of likeness is weakness, folly, and the ease with which it is enticed into snares. Fowlers have many methods of taking small birds, and Satan has many methods of entrapping souls. Some are decoyed by evil companions. Others are enticed by love of dainties. And in that case, he's talking about food. Hunger drives many into the trap and fright impels a number to fly into the net. Fowlers know their birds and how to take them. But the birds see not the snare as to avoid it and they cannot break it as to escape from it. Happy is the bird that hath a delivered, has a deliverer strong and mighty and ready in the moment of peril. Happier still is the soul over which the Lord watches day and night to pluck its feet out of the net. What joy there is in this song, our soul is escaped. How the emancipated one sings and soars and soars and sings again. Blessed be God, many of us make joyous music with the notes our soul is escaped. Escaped from our natural slavery. Escaped from guilt, the degradation, 
The habit, the dominion of sin, escaped from the vain deceits and fascinations of Satan, escaped from all that can destroy, we do indeed experience delight. What a wonderful grace it is. What a marvelous escape that we who are so easily misled should not have been permitted to die by the dread fowler's hand. The Lord has heard the prayer which he taught us to pray, and he has delivered us from evil. The snare is broken and we are escaped. The song is worth repeating. It is well worth dwelling upon so great a mercy. The snare may be false doctrine, pride, lust, or temptation to indulge in policy, or to despair, or to presume. What a high favor it is to have it broken before our eyes so that it has no more power over us. We see not the mercy while we are in the snare. Perhaps we are so foolish as to dispose the breaking of the satanic charm. The gratitude comes when, we es- when escape is seen and when we perceive what we have escaped from and by what hand we have been set free. Then our Lord has a song from our mouths and our hearts as we make heaven and earth ring with the notes. The snare is broken and we have escaped. We have been tempted but not taken, cast down but not destroyed, perplexed but not in despair, and deaths often but still alive. Blessed be Jehovah. And so we see a beautiful imagery captured within this idea. That we have been set free from the very snares that seek to entangle us. So many times, whether we are driven into the snares and the nets of the devil by our own desires or by the influence of someone else or because we think we are hungry and this is the only way to go. However it is that we find ourselves unwittingly inside the snares of the enemy, all of a sudden we realize we cannot escape on our own and it takes the strong arm of someone else who can come and free us from our bondage. And if you have found yourself in that place, if you have realized the snare that the enemy has captured you in, and you know and put your faith in the one who has come and freed you, we can fly away and sing his praises. I have escaped the fowler's snare. I am no longer entangled, no longer covered by the things of this world that have entangled me and keep me down and keep me captured. I can be free to worship the Lord, to sing to him because we have escaped. The snare is broken. Brothers and sisters, I think this is a beautiful image of how Christ saves us. There is a snare that we don't understand. We fly into it, and some of us have no idea we're even inside of a net. But at some point, you'll realize it. At some point, you'll know that Satan has you. At some point, you'll know that you are not free to move about. At some point, you'll know that your soul is being weighed down by something that you didn't intend to get into, but you're there nonetheless, and you must call out for the Lord to come and to save you. And when he does, you will rise up, and we ought to say, praise the Lord, the snare is gone. I thought what he said was beautiful. And I think it's correct. Escaped from our natural slavery. That's our state of sin in this world. You see, we're born into it. Escaped from the guilt 
the habit, the domination, denomination of sin, escaped from the vain deceits, escaped from all that can destroy it. Escape from false doctrine, from pride, from lust, from temptation, and even from despair. And we do indeed experience joy when the net is broken. Mr. Spurgeon quoted part of a verse. Let me read that to you. It's familiar to us all. In fact, as I started reading it, you probably smiled because you knew it. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning with verse 7, says this, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. See, this is the same idea. We experience difficulties in life, but we know the one who's overcome them. We can have difficulties and feel as though the flood is going to roll right over us. We can feel encaptured by the snare, by the things of this world. But we know that despite all of this, if the Lord is ours, that he is on our side and we can and will escape. Now, verse 8 is really an echo of chapter 121, verse 2, which says, My help comes from the Lord. Look at verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And this is important because too many times in our lives we get swept up into the flood of waters or we find ourselves in the net of society or life that keeps us captured, that keeps us from doing the things that God wants us to do. And sometimes when we find an escape, we think that we did it on our own. You ever thought that? Well, I have. I think it's natural for all of us. Somehow we think that something happened or accomplished and somehow we did it in our own strength. We become reliant on ourselves and we must be reminded that our help is in the name of the Lord who has made the heavens and the earth. Everything that is here was made by him. And if we overcome anything, it is only because of him and not through my own strength. I did not let myself out of the net. I did not pull myself up out of the floodwaters on my own. It is only because of him and his help exclusively. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord. This is God's character to look after us, to care for us, to give us what we need, to be our foundation, to be our help and our present need to be our creator and our preserver. And we must look to him knowing our place and his. Let me continue on to chapter 125, 
Psalm 125, and it reads as follows. A song of ascent. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. And from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of the wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who were upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evil doers. Peace be upon Israel. And here again, as I've mentioned, these are not continuously written psalms, but we see perhaps why they have been placed together so closely. We see continuation of a similar theme. Just as the Lord is the only one who can help us and save us from the nets and the floods of society that are trying uh, to press in against us, so He is also a mountain that is set against those who want to harm us. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Notice the emphasis here is on our trust in Him. Again, this is so vitally important that we remember it is our trust, our faith in Him. He doesn't require a series of sacrifices. He doesn't require you to donate so much money. He doesn't require you to fast for so many days or to take a great journey to a specific place. All that He requires to belong to Him is trust in Him. Boy, that's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? Anyone who's lived for any amount of time can tell you that. Trust is really hard. You know what makes trust even more hard? Listen carefully. When we feel like it's been violated. Does the Lord ever violate His trust? No. Do we feel like He does? Yes. Who's wrong in that? Well, we are. Hmm. I've heard many a people who feel like the Lord violated their trust and use that as an excuse to never trust the Lord again. But he never violates his trust. As I've said time and time again, we are always the one who do the leaving. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. He does not change. He is the very foundation of what is truth and thereby what is trust. And if I ever feel like I, the Lord has violated His trust, I ought to really consider myself because I'm the one who's done the violating because He never, ever changes. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Well, who trusts in Him? Well, we do. Those of us who trust in Him cannot be moved. Why? Because He cannot be moved. Not from my own strength, not from a place of my own power do I say I cannot be moved, but only because I trust in Him. And the extent to which I trust in Him is the extent to which I cannot be moved, you see. 
And so when we're talking about Mount Zion, it is the idea of something that doesn't change. That that is the anchor for what and who we are. That it is as immovable as a mountain. Now, if you look through the scriptures, the concept of Zion or Mount Zion changes to some degree depending on their circumstances. Zion has been David's fortress capital in the southeast side of Jerusalem. It's been referred to as the Temple Mount. Zion has been used to refer to the Israelites. And in the New Testament, it's referred to as our spiritual kingdom. But the idea being that it is something that is of God and will not and cannot be moved unless God allows, and he will not allow it. So when we look at this and we understand those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, we cannot be moved and we abide forever. Those of us who've been saved, I've said this repeatedly in the last few weeks, we've been saved. If you know the Lord, if you put your faith in Him, it is then not yours to hold on to till the end. It is His. He is the one who has saved you. You put your faith in Him, as the previous chapter says, and then it is up to Him to guard and to keep you, and He will not be moved. No matter what you do in your life, you will not lose your salvation if you've truly been saved because it belongs to him. He holds it and he will never, ever let it go. That's not a license or an excuse to live a life however we want to. But it is the trust and the faith that we must have to know that we can always look to him the author, founder, perfecter of our faith, look to him, the mountain, and know that no matter what waves come, no matter what net may come over me, that he is the Mount of Zion, and if I have my faith and my trust in him, that I will not be moved because he will not be moved. It also says here in verse 2 that as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth. And forevermore. <clears throat> there are seven prominent mountains around Jerusalem. And before you get impressed, I had to look this up. <laughs> Interesting feature, though. They don't completely surround Jerusalem all the way around. There is a way in. God protects us, but he doesn't completely close us in. To completely protect us, to completely close us in, would be to take us out of this world. And we're still here. If you know the Lord, and you are here today, He is guarding you. He is protecting you. He is the mount that will never be moved. He is surrounding you with his protection, but not completely because he expects you to do work. He expects you to serve him. And you know, when we serve him, it can be a little dangerous. But when we have the one who can't be moved, when we have full confidence and assurance that we will not be snatched out of his hand, then what do we have to fear? 
And it goes on and tells us about this. And in verse 3, it says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. Lest, and maybe your translation says but or some other word there, the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. See, there's a promise and a warning here as well. The scepter or rod of wickedness shall not rest on the land of the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. This is not a contradiction of anything that I just said. It is a reminder to us that we are to do good. And when we experience hard times, that rod, that painful experience, it will still come, but it will not rest on us. Do you see the difference? We will go through trying times. We will experience things in life that we don't like. We will be uncomfortable, sometimes for short periods of time, sometimes for longer. But if you are sitting here today and are experiencing a situation that you're ready to pass, a time maybe when the rod is resting on you, it will not rest forever. As the Bible says, this too shall pass. And so it is an encouragement to us that when we experience a hard time, let us not lose our faith, let us not turn aside, but remember who the Lord is, that He is the mountain that does not move, that He is protecting us. And if we are experiencing a struggle and a difficulty, let us remember that it will not last forever. But with that being said, we can't forget the rest either. Lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. I think this is an indication of those who know the Lord, who then purposefully do things that are wrong. We all do things that are wrong. Multiple times of the day. We'll have a thought that we shouldn't. Maybe we'll exclaim something in a moment of distress that we shouldn't. But I think stretching out the hand is an indication that there's a purposeful, thoughtful, doing something incorrect. And as I said before, while we cannot be moved because we are trusting in Him, we can be disciplined if we continuously, purposely stretch out our hand to take that which we should not. And this is a two-edged thing. Perhaps you're sitting here today, as I said, and you're struggling because you know you feel like there is a rod resting upon you. If you are following after the Lord, if you are looking unto Him, if you are resting in Mount Zion in Him, then rest in the fact that the rod will not last forever. If, on the other hand, you know Him, And you are engaged in things that you shouldn't do. You are purposefully stretching out your hand to grab the things of life that you shouldn't. That is a warning that his rod will be there to correct us and to tell us that we are wrong. 
Verse 4 tells us what we are to do. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. To do any good comes from where? Our hearts. Any amount of good that comes in us comes from our hearts. Of course, the key to this is, is your heart clean? If you've never been saved, if you've never experienced the forgiveness of the Lord, then your heart is as hard as stone and nothing comes from it. If you've been saved and experienced the saving grace in the Lord, then what comes from your heart is good. Because those who trust in the Lord are good. And we are good because God is in us. It is not a self-righteous good. It is a good that we have because the Lord is good and lives in us. We must have faith and trust in a good heart. And we will do good things. Verse 5 is a warning to this. It's kind of the opposite of verse 4. But those who turn aside from their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. I'm going to pause there. I didn't read all of it. There are two types of people in this world. Those who are upright and those who are crooked. Crooked may be a word that we have our own ideas of what that means, but the example here is very clear. Those who know the Lord who are good, based on His love and mercy, and those who are not. Consider the crooked for just a minute. This is important for us to consider. The crooked or the false-hearted, how'd they get that way? They look for crooked things. You ever experienced that yourself? You ever purposely looked at the wrong that goes on in the world and desired it? You ever had a friend grab you and say, let's go do this? When you know that that's not right, be careful. What we look at, what we listen to, and what we do is very, very important because it leads to us making choices. Those who are crooked look for crooked ways, and then they choose those paths and turn aside unto them. It doesn't take very long to get onto the wrong path and realize months or weeks and sometimes even just a few hours how far away from the straight path you are. It doesn't take very long to turn aside a little bit. And the next thing you know, you don't even know where you're at. We must be careful to not allow that to happen. And I think it starts by looking and desiring. And so we must be careful for what we put in our mind and how we look. Now, I want to look at the last four words of this chapter. It says, peace be upon Israel. Let's look at the first verse, too. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. We must trust 
and the Lord if we want peace. And it's really that simple. If we want to be on the straight and the narrow, we must trust in the one who doesn't move. If we are experiencing times of trial or discipline, we must either correct ourselves with the help of the one who doesn't move, or we must be encouraged to endure until the correction or the temptation or the trial is over so that peace can be upon us. We must remember that our help, my help, your help comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It is not possible for you to rescue yourselves. Society and the world is going to roll over you like a flood. Sin will come upon you like a snare and capture you before you have any idea what's going on. The crooked path that you look at and take will take you off in a direction you do not want to go. But our help for all of those things comes from the Lord. The snare is broken and we can escape. When we are in trouble, we should remember that the Lord surrounds us and the wicked will not rest on us. We must do good and stay on the straight and narrow way. And if we want peace, we must trust in the Lord. Now, I understand it's really easy for me to say. It's easy for me to say, Because I know it's true. How do you know it's true? A couple different ways. One of them is by experience. By experience. My experience tells me that my trust in Him as the rock of my salvation has what's helped me amidst the flood and what's kept me from the snare. My experience from him, the day that I was saved, is the release from the captor's net. And as many of you have and will continue to testify, sometimes it's not until you're released you had any idea just how bad it was. Because we get really used to it. The net gets tighter. The sin gets around us more. We just get used to thinking, well, this is just the way it is. I can only fly so high. I can only stretch my wings so much. Boy, when that net comes off and that peace enters our heart and our mind, we're finally free, free to praise him, free to do the good that he wants us to do. What a wonderful place that is. But in addition to my experience, because you may or may not trust that, I trust this. I trust the scriptures that tell me that it's true. I trust the scriptures that have been put together for a thousand or more years. I trust the scriptures that tell me all about who the Lord is. There's one other thing that I trust. It's the Spirit of God. Because it's the Spirit of God that witnesses or testifies and tells me and tells you that what is here is true. 
It's the spirit that tells us that God is a mountain that is not moved. And if I put my faith in him, that I will not be moved either. It is that spirit of encouragement that tells me who I am and who he is. That is what I trust. That is what I look for. It's not just about my experience. It's not just about the scriptures. It's about all of it. And so if today you realize that you're snared, (laughs) then pray to him to release you. You only have to trust him. It sounds so counterintuitive. Maybe that's why it's so hard. Maybe if I told you, well, if you could just save up $1,000 and give it to the church. (laughs) Well, that's not true. Maybe if I told you, well, if you just came to like 85% of the, the services, you'd be good. It's not true. Maybe if I told you, well, if you would just get baptized, then you're just going to get wet. The truth is, I think sometimes we're looking for something tangible to do. And I think if I stood up here and told you, do this and you'll be good, many would try to do it. They'd take every effort they can to do that thing, whatever it is. But trust isn't a thing. Faith isn't a thing. That's why it's beautiful, because it's open to everybody. It's also why it's difficult sometimes. Because we don't either realize that we're stuck in the snare, or we don't realize that all we have to do is call and cry out to him. If you have found yourself stuck in the snare, as it were, then I pray that you would seek him, and that when that net is fallen you will fly and rejoice and say, hallelujah, the net is broken. That you will join us in rejoicing in that wonderful experience because now you know based on scripture, you know based on the spirit, and you know based on experience what it is that I'm talking about. And it will set your feet on Mount Zion with the mountains that surround you, with the mountain that will never move, that you can go throughout life with the peace that we have. And so I pray, if you don't know what I'm talking about, that you would seek the Lord. What does that mean? Talk to him. Here again, I don't want to, I don't want to drag this out, but let me just clarify. <clears throat> just as I said, you don't have to come to church so many times. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. You don't have to give so much money. You don't have to repeat a certain thing. When you talk to the Lord, you don't have to do it in a special language. You don't have to do it in a special way. You don't have to do it on your knees, although it seems to help a lot of people. You don't have to do it standing up. You just have to talk with him. You don't even have to do it verbally. God knows what you're thinking. Everything you thought last week, he already knew. And everything you're going to think next week, He already knows. So when we pray to God, just talk to him. Best advice I ever got. In fact, that advice 
I got maybe a month or two before I got saved. Just talk with him. So I encourage you. Just talk with him. Tell him what you want. Tell him what you need. Tell him how you feel. You're not going to surprise him because he already knows. You're not going to offend him because he already knows. You're not going to disappoint him because he already knows. So why do we not feel open just to tell him where we're at and what we need? Lord, I need this. But you know what? I feel kind of bad asking for it. But this is really how I feel. Just be honest. Be truthful. And seek him out and trust in him.